everyone. This is Volts for September 9th, 2022. The long, sordid, and ongoing tale of California's biggest utility. I'm your host, David Roberts. Reporter Catherine Blunt was still new to the Wall Street Journal when 2018's devastating campfire broke out in California and she was swept into the biggest story of her career. Alongside colleagues Russell Gold and Rebecca Smith, she wrote a series of pieces on the ongoing travails of Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, the utility whose power lines had started the campfire. The journal's coverage was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize, and Blunt has now expanded it into a new book, California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. It is a rollicking tour through PG&E's decades-long series of disasters and their roots in the early 20th century. I myself am a longtime critic of utilities, but even I was stunned to see all of PG&E's incompetence and malfeasance gathered together in one place, alongside its well-meaning but serially failed attempts to put things right. It is a story of failure and redemption, except the redemption keeps being interrupted by more failure. I couldn't put the book down, so I'm eager to talk to Blunt about how the utilities' travails began, why it has struggled so mightily to take control of its fate, and what might come next for the electricity sector's favorite punching bag. So without further ado, Catherine Blunt, welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. This book, Catherine, is a bit of a mind blower. I mean, I probably, because of my job, followed this stuff as it was happening closer than the the average uh, Joe or Jane, but it is still stunning to see it all put in one place. As far as I can tell, for the entirety of the 21st century, PG&E has been in one of three states, either A, causing some disaster that kills a bunch of people, B, dealing with the blowback and lawsuits that come as a result of the disaster that killed a bunch of people, or C, implementing an ultimately failed and useless (laughs) attempt to mitigate the disasters that killed a bunch of people and prevent future disasters. There has not been a period of just normal operation of PG&E for for decades now. It's It's perpetual crisis. How how much of that did you appreciate going into this story? How much of that? I mean, it's just such a dumpster fire. I can't believe I wasn't more aware of it. And I can't believe like the public's not more aware of it. How aware were you going in? Yeah, it's totally true. These last 20 years have been just exceptionally bad for the company. I had some idea of this going into it because of my coverage at the journal that, as you say, I had collaborated on with two close colleagues. And Um, One of the final stories that we did together was a really big picture narrative that tried to take readers through the last 20 years and what that's meant for PG&E. But as I got more into the details, I I too was really surprised at some things and how how bad it was. Well, let's go back into the recesses of history. One of the most sort of telling tales from the beginning is that the original merger of PG&E with Great Western, uh, another utility, this is the merger that ended up sort of saddling PG&E with all these power lines that it never really understood. And that's to me, is kind of like the original sin, like the seed of everything that came after us. So t- just tell us a little bit about the story of those two utilities and how they ended up as one. There's a couple ways to think about this. It is a really fascinating part of PG&E's history. So as I'm sure at least some listeners know, PG&E is a very old company, more than 100 years old at this point. It's got roots um, dating back to the gold rush. It only ever had, in the early days, one real competitor, and that was Great Western Power. Both PG&E and Great Western were competing to build systems to serve San Francisco, to support the population growth there. And um, around this time, you're beginning to see the solidification of you know, the conventional wisdom that utilities should be these monopoly companies, because you know, of course, this uh, industry is very capital intensive, and the idea was you shouldn't have a bunch of companies building duplicative infrastructure. And you're beginning to see, you know, the regulator emerge to oversee all of this. 
there's some wild quotes from that period where people are like, nothing scares customers more than an outbreak of competition. I'm like, <laughs> it's just such a weird, <laughs> such a weird perspective based on our current way we talk about markets. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of kind of colorful stuff that I managed to dig up, like, you know, a lawyer for PG&E and a lawyer for Great Western, like almost got into a fist fight at what was known as the Railroad Commission, which is now the California Public Utilities Commission. Pretty funny. So they they competed for a while and then they ultimately merged and it formed the big Northern California monopoly that we know today. And so there's there's a few consequences of this. So it, it really did give this company a lot of economic might, this merger, and it allowed it to exist as a pretty good company for most of the 20th century. It did a lot to invest in its system. It, it helped electrify different parts of the state. It supported economic growth. Um, it was largely run by engineers. And as we will discuss in depth, this really begins to fall apart in the 21st century. And quite literally, in that one of Great Western's <laughs> one of Great Western's power lines, one of the earliest transmission lines that this company built that PG&E ultimately inherited, failed and started the campfire. The component of the line that broke was literally 100 years old. It was installed somewhere around 1920, and it hung there ever since. Yeah, it's wild. Great Western built these lines, and then PG&E sort of inherited them in the merger and never really had good documentation of them or like never really did particularly good monitoring of them. It's kind of a gimme for a utility to do well in the 20th century since mostly what they were asked to do during the 20th century is build stuff. And they love building stuff. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, that's how they make money. And now so like we reach the age of maintenance and everything falls apart. So before we actually get into the specifics, I wanted to, this is a bit of a axe I have to, to grind. So I have to emphasize it up front. But I thought your book was just this exquisite extended illustration of a point about utilities that I've been hammering for over a decade now, which is that investor-owned utilities make money by building new stuff. They get a rate of return on investments in new stuff. They do not get a rate of return on maintenance, on spending money on monitoring and maintaining existing infrastructure. And that's just that force you see that at work throughout your entire book like tell us you know the the one sort of engineer mentions in the electricity department mentions like you know if i spend a hundred dollars on a new line we get 120 back mm -hmm. if i spend a hundred on maintenance that's it so just like spell that out a little bit that sort of like um disparity that sort of works its way into pg and e's operations throughout this whole century yeah absolutely so of course as I'm sure many listeners know, the argument for the investor-owned utility model is that you know having this profit motive allows for greater access to capital and it's a capital-intensive business. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, and I guess if we're talking about the balance between capital spending and maintenance spending, and the fact that strong financial performers are good at minimizing expenses to free up money to invest in capital, I guess theoretically this is possible without compromising safety. But PG&E did not do this well. Mm -hmm. It didn't do this well at all. And a really big issue happened in 2010, in which a natural gas transmission pipeline exploded in San Bruno, which is south of mm -hmm. San Francisco. And that results in this big federal investigation of PG&E's gas transmission operations. The company, I think, provided the prosecutors something like 10 million pages of documents or something like that. And in those documents was evidence that the company had been under great pressure in, you know, like kind of the early 2000s to the, around the 2010 timeframe to reduce expenses. And there were a number of reasons for this, but it found that in particular, gas transmission faced major expense pressures at the time that the company was you know, still able to maximize its authorized rate of return. As a matter of fact, it exceeded it, is what um, some auditors had found. So it had been you know, investing a lot of capital, making pretty substantial returns, and also underspending on operations and maintenance and gas transmission, you know, far less than the company told regulators it had planned to spend. You know, you can't draw a straight line between that finding and the fact that the pipeline blew up. But I mean, it's all part and parcel of the conclusion that it had basically broken federal law in the way that it was um, running its gas operations. And so what was striking to me in uh, kind of really delving into the underlying issues with the campfire, as we discussed earlier in the program, is that there were a lot of parallels here the uh, electric transmission division also faced a lot of expense pressure 
for various reasons. And the consequences of that were just devastating. Like we're saying, it's kind of built in. Like if you want to be a growing, you know, you want to be on Wall Street, you want to be a traded company, you want to, you have to demonstrate growth and all that. And all spending on maintenance does nothing for that, does nothing to grow you, does nothing to make you any profits. Like from the perspective of investors, every penny you spend on maintenance is basically just deadweight loss. You know, with that structure in place, the feds can come along and say, that doesn't mean you can't spend on maintenance. You know, you still have to spend on maintenance, but like you can say that all day long, but the financial forces point the way they point. And as you say, the San Bruno explosion was an early example of that. And after the San Bruno explosion in the court case and everything, one of the things PG&E was forced to do was sort of, and this becomes a familiar story as well, like after the disaster, there's this scramble, like we've got to do a major assessment of our gas pipelines, you know, like now that the explosions already happened, we need to go down and see if it's going to happen again. So it sort of tell us about what they found when they went down and looked. So they, they did find a lot of problems. Um, one thing that one of the issues leading up to San Bruno is that the company was supposed to do more to test the integrity of welded pipes, who seems had the potential to have some sort of issue. The best means of doing that is draining the line of gas and filling it with pressurized water and monitoring the pressure of that water running through the pipeline. And if there's any, you know, you can see if there's any sort of rupture or, you know, at worst, an explosion. Obviously, that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of money. Yes. And it's inconvenient for customers, for the company. Not a preferred mode of doing things for a while, but then they had to go back and do it. And there were several other pipelines that had had issues with their seams, and at least three, I think, exploded when they were hydro-tested. Um, <laughs> there was also just, like, other... Stuff within the division that was antiquated, antiquated systems, antiquated trucks. Um, and so they did a pretty big overhaul. But, you know, one thing that's frankly scary, and this is not just scary in PG&E's case, I think it's common for utilities across the country. You know, it, it does take uh, some sort of disaster to reveal the extent of the problems. And, you know, you made reference earlier to kind of someone talking about moving money around yeah, you know, the the CPUC had a really interesting like day-long affair in which they had a bunch of experts talk about safety culture within utilities. And there was one guy who was like, yeah, you know, if you invest a dollar in capital, you get 120 back. If you invest a dollar in maintenance, it's just, you know, a dollar out the door. So you have this kind of slow decision-making over time. All right. of a sudden, it's a dollar ten in capital and 80 cents in maintenance. And so it goes. And the consequences of that initially are next to nothing. There's There's no immediate consequence. Right. So that's scary, frankly. It is scary. And it's, um, you know, this is another thing that comes up a lot in the book and the court cases around this stuff. So, you you know, in in the gas explosion, then later the fires from the electricity transmission, there's this question of what exactly PG&E can be convicted for and whether it can be convicted of second degree manslaughter, which, you know, first degree is I'm setting out willfully to kill you. <laughs> Second degree is I'm acting with willful disregard to your safety in such a way that I can reasonably predict the results. And right. so there's a lot of sort of discussion about, you know, you talk about this long effect on decision-making over time, like no single person, no single manager is thinking, let's break the law, even though I know it's going to kill people to save a buck. It's just a little incremental decision here, a little incremental decision there, a little decision there. And these things sort of snowball on themselves and you get the sort of aggregate effect of willful, you know, ignorance of maintenance without anyone in particular being responsible for it. It brings up all these weird questions about how to hold companies responsible. Yeah, absolutely. And and honestly, this is one of the more uh, interesting questions that I tried to explore in the book. I mean, it's the, the idea of corporate liability is not intuitive. And so after these disasters, everyone's asking who is culpable. And the answer almost inevitably is like nobody and everybody. Right. We want, we want a bad guy, but there's no bad guy here. There's never a bad guy in the whole book. There's not a single like truly malign actor in the whole book. That's true, I think. So the trial that came after the San Bruno explosion was a really interesting exploration of this question. And so I kind of tried to go deep in sort of the legal theory that underpinned this whole thing. And I won't obviously get too much in the weeds on this, but it was just fascinating to 
what the prosecutors did was they brought forward a lot of employees who had some knowledge that the company was not abiding by regulation. And they also knew that um, they weren't doing enough and spending enough as a, as a result of expense pressure to do inspections that could ensure these pipelines were truly safe um, when they were running at higher pressures. So, of course, like you have to prove some level of intent right. Right, to, to convict anybody or a company of a crime. And the, the idea of this intent was that they were, you know, I, I think the, the exact definition uh, it was that they were um, acting with willful indifference to the regulations requirements, right? And so it gets kind of technical. Well, it gets kind of philosophical too, right? Because sort of by definition, a group of people doesn't have intent in the way we, in the way we think about intent. Like intent is always sort of implicit. Right. Yeah, it, it does get pretty philosophical. And, you know, in the case of the campfire, it was ultimately it was it was similar in that PG&E was ultimately convicted on 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter, hmm. uh, as you were referring to earlier. And the idea was that the company or a, a group of individuals within the company knew that there was fire risk within the Feather River Canyon and that specifically the transmission lines posed fire risk and that they didn't do nearly enough to mitigate it. But in that, though, I think that what you have to understand is that the, the employees didn't understand the extent of the risk because they mm-hmm. hadn't been doing enough to really understand that. So it is remarkable. And it's it's a lot to think about. Yeah, it's one thing to convict a person or a company of something they did on purpose. But it's these are like counterfactuals, like something you should have known not to do or like, <laughs> you know, what you should have known in the counterfactual case. It's, it gets super complicated. But like, as you say, they convicted them. They convicted PG&E in the San Bruno case, which sort of, I think, was a shock and a bit of a terror to probably not just PG&E, but probably to lots of other utilities, too. So just a side question, um, you know, in the in the wake of the San Bruno explosion, there's, as you say, this guy, I can't remember his name, was brought in to basically shape up the gas division because in addition to the lack of inspections, you know, there's just antiquated equipment, antiquated documentation, uh, you know, paper and in boxes, information in all these different offices, not coordinating, et cetera. And, and he sort of tried to sh- whip it into shape. And my impression from the book is that he more or less succeeded in that division now, which is the smaller part of PG&E, kind of got its act together. Is that true? Does its act, does it remain together? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think that it was was widely acknowledged that um, Nick is his name, Nick Stavropoulos, did a lot to help write the ship. And the division operated much better as a result of the actions that he and his team took to modernize everything and to, you know, do proper inspections, proper testing. Of course, no one's perfect. Nothing's perfect. I'm sure that there's, you know, there are still some issues within the division. I'm sure some have even emerged since he left. But I mean, they haven't had any major issues since then. Um, And so that's good. I mean, it (laughs) certainly raises questions. I mean, we're, we're talking about sort of like, you know, underlying problems that affect all utilities there's always questions to be to be raised. Let me just put it that way. But they've not had any major issues since San Bruno. Yeah, well, I mean, sort of the one of the darkly comic chapters in the book is, you know, there's the San Bruno explosion, horrible publicity. And so the company is like, we're going to devote all this money and time to shaping up the gas division and do so. But even as they are doing so, they are electing not to do so in the electricity division and they are cutting back on inspections in the electricity division. You know, this is like one of several parts of the book that reads a little bit like a, like a horror story. You know, it's like the girls going up the stairs. You're like, no, don't go up the stairs. It is, <laughs> and of course, like immediately, you know, at, before the gas explosion brouhaha has even really fully wrapped up comes basically the equivalent on the electricity side of uninspected lines now starting fires deaths liability the whole cycle starts all over again so you have to sort of wonder like even if they got the clue on the gas side they clearly didn't get the larger clue of like a larger safety culture across the board right yeah, and I think a notable detail in the book is that the gas division brought in uh, Lloyd Register, uh, the British risk 
management or firm or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, anyway. So to basically assess where they were kind of immediately after the explosion and how far they'd come after they got everything into shape. And then I think Nick suggested to some colleagues on the electric, um, within the electric division that they, how about you have Lloyd's take a look at what you guys are doing? And mm-hmm. they said, not necessary. That was the response. Not necessary. Yeah. It's wild how many times, especially early in the book, they're like, fires are for the hot, dry Southern California. You know, we're up in Northern California. We don't really have to worry about that, which is just seems so uh, darkly ironic in light of subsequent events. For the electricity division, I want to go back a little bit to deregulation. You know, this is a this is a sort of legendary story in California uh, lore already, sort of deregulation and then the subsequent energy crisis and Enron and all the rest of it. And obviously, I don't want you to tell that whole story again. That's a hope there are plenty of books to be written about that. But sort of talk about how it affected PG&E specifically, sort of like how PG&E emerged from that mess. Yeah. So I think in my view, there are two major consequences for PG&E. One is that it resulted in PG&E's first bankruptcy. So after the energy crisis, the company seeks bankruptcy protection. It emerges in 2004 timeframe. And uh, they then they get a new CEO to kind of lead the company into this new chapter. And he is very, very intent on establishing the company as a strong financial performer, basically uh, regaining goodwill on Wall Street, delivering to shareholders. We've already discussed how companies often deliver to shareholders. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of expense pressure during this time. His tenure basically ends with San Bruno. That's Darby, right? That's Peter Darby. Yeah. The other consequence is that as a result of deregulation, you know, utilities in California no longer played the same role in building and operating power plants. Um, They sold most of them during the deregulation push. I mean, with the exception of nuclear and, and hydro. And so that means that as California becomes really determined to bring a lot more wind and solar online, the utility companies are going out and contracting for this power. They're not building the wind and solar farms themselves. And as you know, as we know, wind and solar are some of the cheapest forms of generation today. They were not right. back when the utilities really began pushing on this. So they had they were signing a lot of really expensive contracts. Those costs were passed on to customers as expenses. This is not something on which the company earned a return. Right. And I think that ironically served to increase, you know, added a further layer of pressure on the expense side. Right. So you have sort of two forces working coming out of this post-deregulatory bankruptcy. One, the CPUC is forcing the company to contract for a bunch more quite expensive clean power. So rates are going up. So there's a lot of pressure on the utility to cut back. And then secondly, post-deregulation, this is a privately traded company on the market and the way you make it healthy is draw new private investment. So the way to do that is to show returns, show quarterly, you know, good quarterly performance. So that also is another huge pressure to cut expenses and all that pressure together, you know, like as we were discussing what expenses get cut, it's the expenses that don't bring in any money. It's the expenses that don't bring in any return. And that's maintenance of this truly gigantic sprawling infrastructure. So talk a little bit about, (laughs) I found this really amusing in a very like uh, early 2000s, 2010s way, Darby's sort of idea of transformation. And he brought in Accenture. Tell us a little bit about the Accenture (laughs) chapter, which I found, you know, you have to laugh. Oh, I mean, you you really do. Um, And also, I'll just, you know, quickly Shout out to my colleague, I guess former colleague, she just retired, uh, Rebecca Smith, who she uh, she covered the company during this time and she knew a little bit about the transformation. And so she did a lot of digging for us at the journal and, and really kind of helped bring that to light. But then I, as I started getting even deeper into it, I mean, like it was both terrifying and funny at the same time. So the idea was to transform the business. Um, I'm actually looking at a little foam pyramid that has the the goals on it right now. It's delighted customers, <laughs> rewarded shareholders, and energized employees. Our vision, the leading utility in the United States. So um, at its core, this was the ultimate goal was 8% uh, annual EPS growth. That was the goal. And um, the goal was to bring in Accenture to figure out ways basically to cut expenses. That was the idea. And Accenture 
<laughs> so uh, it was a, it was it was a bunch of them. I mean, they they, they hired a lot of these consultants, and the the employee PG employees called them the green beans. <laughs> and, uh, and they come in and they're looking through PG&E's you know records and data and stuff, and they're like, "Hey guys, like we're trying to do some benchmarking, and this is really hard because you don't have very good data." I know. <laughs> And then so they're like, okay, well, proceeding on, um, we could, we could cut expenses in all these areas because it's you know uh, it's been outpacing inflation over a ten year period. So here's where you should be cutting costs. But the thing about um, pretty much all of the initiatives that Accenture helped implement were just disasters for one reason or another, and you know payroll got bungled. Um, employees were mad. I mean, there was like I think there was some. They were trying to use some new mapping tool that didn't work at all. So employees literally had to like rely on MapQuest when they were <laughs> yes. where to go. This is like every corporate transformation effort in a nutshell. It's like a parody of them, like whizbang new systems that nobody understands or likes, like ignoring people, ignoring maintenance, producing these elaborate reports. Just like all, it's so early. It's so of that time. It was. It really was of that time. And, you know, ultimately, it was just a really expensive bust is how you sum it up. And it was distracting. It made employees angry. And um, I think so. I've heard various estimates for how much it costs. Like some people believe it costs a billion dollars. I've settled on the number 300 million and, and PG&E ended up negotiating like some sort of discount because they were so mad. <laughs> Because they didn't get anything? <laughs> what was they- the guy's quote? He's like, it's not like you... It's not like you shopped for a Jaguar and got a, a Volkswagen. It's like you shopped for a Jaguar and didn't get a car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> and so all of that process, aside from the rest of the fiasco, is the expenses that were getting cut were predictably maintenance and monitoring of this vast system of transmission lines. And then, you know, the other thing that starts happening, the other thing that's very of our time that starts happening in the early 2000s and 2010s is California starts getting drier and drier, goes into these mega droughts. You know, the winds come. Basically, fire danger starts steadily rising, even as PG&E is sort of cutting expenses, uh, monitoring it. And, you know, the sort of predictable result is a bunch of fires start based on failures of their transmission system. And so this brings us to an interesting law in California which holds utilities 100% responsible for fires they start. Tell us a little bit about that law. Like, how did that law end up on the books? Like, it turns out to be incredibly consequential <laughs> law. How did, why does California have this quirk? Yeah. So, the, what we're referring to is, is uh, the wonky official name is inverse condemnation. And it, it sounds really complicated, but it, it's not so complicated. So, you think about, eminent domain, right? If Mm -hmm. uh, some sort of governmental agency wants to build something serving the public good, they have the right to take your private land if they compensate you properly, right? The flip of that, I think is why it's called inverse condemnation, is that if that thing built to serve the public good, uh, you know, results in some sort of property damage, you, the, the property owner, are entitled to compensation. And initially, this really applied only to publicly owned utility companies, right? Governmental agencies. But in the early 90s, there was a a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of California, I think, involving a power ignited by one of Southern California Edison's power lines. And the court determined that the privately owned utilities are substantially similar to their publicly owned counterparts and therefore are subject to inverse condemnation as well. And this sort of sets off this cycle You know, so so California gets drier and drier, and and PG&E has all these old power lines crisscrossing the state, and a fire happens on their watch, and it's huge, and the damages are enormous, and suddenly they have to compensate these enormous because they're completely responsible for it under this law. They have to come up with, you know, there's all these lawsuits, people arguing, coming to a settlement finally, and then as that's happening, another fire <laughs> starts. And I mean, it's it's almost comical. And tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but we have this law holding them responsible for the fires and PG&E's sort of ongoing health or even existence depends on not starting any more of these fires, but it simply can't not start these fires. I mean, uh, there's no, nobody at any point in the book has a serious plan 
for how PG&E could eliminate that risk. Because, I mean, just like talk a little bit about the extent of like what it would really require to genuinely send out people to go put eyeballs. I mean, this is the thing, like you, you talk about, it's pretty labor intensive to test these natural gas pipelines in a proper way. And it's similar with the transmission lines. Like it's a labor intensive thing to truly inspect them. You're supposed to go climb, literally climb the tower and look at all the little hooks, put your eyeballs on all the little hooks. You know, the cheap way is just to drive a helicopter pass, but to really do it, it's quite labor intensive. So just give us a sense of like, what would it take? How many of these lines are out there? Like what kind of workforce and money would it take to genuinely do the kind of inspection that would reduce this risk appreciably close to zero? Yeah. So I think that at the end of the day, getting to zero is about as close to zero as it gets. Because in, in some ways, I mean, the, the risk is inherent throughout the system. So there are two primary risk modes, right? There's the risk that a tree branch or a tree limb or something could touch the live wire and ignite a fire. And, you know, so the way that the company tries to get ahead of this is to make sure that it sends out vast numbers of contractors to trim or remove trees that have the potential to contact the wires. But as we know, in Northern California, seasonal winds occur, you know, very strong seasonal winds in the fall, maybe it lifts a branch from, you know, 50 yards away, and that branch gets tangled in the power line. I I don't know how you account for that. Yeah. And trees are, uh, you know, quite legendarily growing right, right, <laughs> all, right. The, all the time. They are in a, most of them are in a constant state of growth of some kind. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I've likened this to Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill, right? I mean, that's what vegetation management is. You roll it up and then it falls back down and then you go do it again. And so the, then of course the other risk is that the transmission line itself could fail in some way because of, of an issue with the equipment, whether that be like a, you know, a tiny piece of hardware, like a hook or an issue with the wire itself or the structure. Um, and so, that requires inspections to make sure that there hasn't been substantial deterioration of some kind that puts uh, that asset at risk of failure. And I mean, the good news is that, I mean, I think historically speaking, climbing the tower or the pole has been the best way to get a look at all of this stuff. They are doing more with like drones and, and LiDAR technology and, mm. and things that make it so that you don't maybe have to do that all the time. But just to contextualize all this, the company's service territory is 70,000 square miles. Yeah, it was like hundreds of thousands of miles of lines we're talking about. Certainly hundreds of thousands of structures. I think probably tens of thousands of miles of lines, but it's still, it's enormous. Yeah. Once again, paralleling the the gas episode, like they have this fire, they're found liable, there's all this backlash, and then there's this scramble to like, let's do a, you know, like we're going to fix this. Let's send people out inspecting and tree cutting. And they go out and find, just as they went out and found with the gas network, like, it's a disaster. (laughs) There are decaying lines all over the place and trees all over the place. Like, they just go out and discover yet again what a daunting and enormous task it is in front of them. And, you know, they're sort of like frantically doing this. And as they're doing it, there's another fire and there's another whole round of this. So... Let's talk about this, the the final settlement with fire victims, because you spent some time on this and it's really wild. You know, if PG&E were literally on the hook to pay all the victims of all the fires it started, the full value of what they lost, PG&E simply does not have that much money. Right. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way for it to settle that. So... Talk about what they end up giving uh, victims in this final settlement. It's yeah, it seems like a twisted irony to me. There, oh, it's completely. It's it, this is one of the saddest parts of the book. So I should say at the outset, after a spate of 2017 fires that that resulted from um, trees touching PG&E's power lines, and then of course the l- enormous 2018 fire that resulted from um, the failed transmission line, PG&E estimates it faces about $30 billion in liability costs. God, that's wild. $30 billion, yeah. So there's three classes of claimants. Um, the first is like governmental agencies, other public entities uh, that incurred some costs as a result of the fire. The company reaches a settlement with them first. It's uh, $1 billion in cash. Now, predictably during this bankruptcy, which was an enormously complex Mm-hmm. You know, just you've got all these savvy financial players, um, you know, the the really kind of savvy, distressed investor types descend upon this whole disaster. Um, and I say that because the second class of claimants, 
is insurance companies that are eligible to seek compensation from PG&E because they paid claims to homeowners, but the fire is actually PG&E's fault. So this is this is a result, again, of inverse condemnation. So that said, a lot of these companies, these insurance companies, didn't want to wait around for a settlement. So they sold these claims on the secondary market to basically to hedge funds. There was one in particular that bought a lot of them at a very steep discount and stood to make a lot of money here. And pg e reached the second settlement with this group. And this was $11 billion, and the group demanded that it be in all cash. Mm. And so now the company's out $12 billion in cash. It doesn't have enough cash left to reach the what would be the largest settlement, which is with individual fire victims and business owners that actually lost property. Yes, we paid off the hedge funds, Yeah, and now we're a little short. Yeah, and so... It also gets more complicated because there was competition between the company's shareholders that didn't want to, you know, a restructuring plan that um, would result in a huge equity raise that would dilute the value of their holdings and the bondholders who were fine with doing that. You know, they could issue equity all day long. And they had a they had a plan that would have basically issued enough equity to compensate fire victims. But ultimately, the company, the, the shareholders won. I'm just going to leave it at that. The shareholders won this this battle. And so what happened was the company settled with the last class of claimants, the individuals for 13.5 billion in the form of uh, a trust uh, that was funded with half cash and half with shares in the company. So at the time the trust was funded, it was given enough shares that it held like a 21% stake in the company. So the irony is that they can't liquidate these shares quickly to compensate victims because doing so would sink the share price. <laughs> yes. It's it's you're tying victims compensation to the ongoing health of the company so right. that now the the risks PG&E faces are in part adopted by the victims of its previous risks. Exactly. Exactly. When when the other two settlements had no risk, that's what happened. And of course, you know, it's uh after you know a year plus after emerging from bankruptcy, PG&E's share price hadn't really rebounded. At the time the trust was funded, it, it wasn't actually enough to be valued at that full $13.5 billion. It was actually less. It was something like $10 billion. Right. It was premised on an increase in the, in the share price. It was. Which didn't... That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so twisted that these victims now have to be cheering for PG&E to do well right. to get their money back. It's wild. And also, it just seems to me the risk... I mean, I even feel like calling it risk almost is a is a misnomer. It is given the volume of power lines out there and the lack of inspections historically and the sort of backlog they face on inspections and monitoring and tree trimming and all that stuff. It is, to a first approximation, a certainty that they're going to start more fires, right? I mean, it's just uh, with the drought going on and climate getting worse and worse, it's not even risk. It's just we know this is, we know it's going to happen again. There's no reason to think anything would be different this time, right? Like there's no more prepared. There's no better system in place. It's just going to keep happening over and over again. Uh, Yeah, a couple of things there. I think that, you know, it's also worth noting that we we often talk about these huge catastrophic fires that are ignited by PG&E's power lines because they're very consequential, obviously, but these are not the only fires. Right, right, of course. Their lines ignite hundreds of fires every year. And it just becomes a, a question of, you know, is it going to spread into a catastrophic wildfire? Um, sometimes they're very small and easily contained. Other times, as we've seen, they are definitely not. You know, the question only gets more consequential as the climate changes as the drought gets worse, as the, you know, the consequence of a single spark becomes much higher or potentially higher, I should say. If there's any good to take away from the story, it's that at least PG&E is now more aware of the risk than it ever has been. And it has probably never worked harder in its long history to address it. You know, your, your, your book kind of ends in the middle of this saga ongoing. Like there's been the, the latest round of, you know, fire lawsuit compensation, but we're almost certainly cruising toward the the next one. So what is, do you have any reason to believe a, that there's not just going to be another fire, another round of all the same thing or, or B that, that PG&E has changed in, in any fundamental way? So I think that on the day to day, they're doing a lot more to try to manage the risk and they're doing it in a few different ways. I mean, better inspections, more tree trimming, and they're also preemptively turning off the power when there's yes, risk that a, not, you know, not popular. 
no, it's not popular. And it's not a long-term solution. You know, it's like at the, at this point in time, the company can't safely and reliably provide power at the same time all the time, especially during the fall when the winds pick up. But, and this is really frustrating to customers, obviously, because we're incredibly reliant on electricity and are only becoming more reliant on it mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. So here's something that I find to be very interesting and we'll, it remains to be seen how the company deals with this, but they got a new CEO in January of 2021, you know, five-ish, six months later, in the middle of the summer in July last year, a tree fell on a distribution wire that was not far from Paradise, which was destroyed in the campfire. It ignites to become the second largest wildfire in California history. It like rose all around some of Great Western's old infrastructure, ironically. And so the the new CEO goes up to uh, Butte County, where the fire was was blazing, and says, we've got a new strategy that I'm announcing today, and we're going to underground 10,000 miles of distribution wire. Yeah, she kind of dropped that on everybody, on the shareholders too. Yeah, yeah, she had just told the board the night before that she was going to go public with this, and it was risky because the company hadn't really fleshed out the plan. It didn't really, hadn't decided which circuits need to go underground, hadn't really talked with the CPUC about what this is going to entail. You know, they had a rough estimate that this is going to cost $20 billion over the course of the next decade or so. And so, I mean, this is... This is really interesting to me because we're talking about how like, you know, a tree is inevitably going to strike a line somewhere and a tower or a pole is inevitably going to have a problem somewhere, right? You can never mm-hmm. completely reduce that risk. Undergrounding is basically the only way to eliminate the chance of a line causing a fire. Like that's it. Yeah. Like in theory, it's possible to reduce the risk to almost zero. It's just with what money? Right, right. And so this is an inexpensive plan. You know, it's, I mean, especially she made this announcement in July of 2021. Since then, everything has only gotten more expensive, right? We're living in a really period. Labor is going to be more difficult and more expensive to come by. So the real challenge here, you know, aside from the engineering challenges is the cost management. Rates are already really high in California. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of proceedings on affordability at the CPUC. So how the company is able to pull this off from a money standpoint is going to be really critical to watch. This is something that the the company argues throughout the book, which is infuriating, but not total BS, which is that if you impose too many costs on it or impose too high compensation for victims, such that you basically impoverish the company, then it won't be able to remain financially robust and it won't be able to attract private capital. And if your model is that private capital is supposed to do the work, then you do need a company that can attract private capital. So you have to, so there's like limits on how much you can really punish PG&E, right? Because it does, at least the way the current model works, it does need to stay at least relatively healthy just to keep doing basic day-to-day stuff. It does, it does. And, you know, this for most of the show, we've, we've been talking about the trade-off between capital investments and, and safety spending that you know, PG&E and other utilities struggle with. It's possible, I mean, theoretically, that undergrounding is actually threads this needle, right? It's something on which the company can earn a return, and it does a lot to improve the safety of the system at the same time. Instead of like, you know, building a bunch of, you know, stuff they don't need or gold plating their substations, they're actually able to like earn a return on a real safety investment. But still, I mean, as I haven't heard of any sort of like, you know, shareholder sharing mechanism associated with this plan. So it, it will be recouped through customers. And this is a really challenging time to be passing more costs through. The final question I wanted to come to, and to me, the most important and interesting question that emerges out of all this, you have at the root of this, the infrastructure in place. It is what it is. The costs for properly monitoring it and maintaining it are what they are. And those costs are incredibly high. And you see over and over again through the book how the need to produce returns for investors siphons money away from that, you know, siphons money away from maintenance and, and safety. And so you can, on one hand, you can sort of blame the the for-profit model, right? You can sort of say like the investor-owned utility model, this is intrinsic to it, this conflict, and you're always going to get shortcuts on safety and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, If you, and you address this a little bit toward the end of the book, like if, for instance, California took the dramatic step of buying PG&E and making it a publicly owned company, all those maintenance and safety costs 
still exist and they're still huge, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and all that liability still exists and it's still huge. Right. So like, you know, if, if, if California's bought the company and then it caused the fire, the company would still be liable for all the damages to the fire. And instead of private investors paying that out, it would be California taxpayers. So in other words, if it became a public company, all these costs would fall very squarely on ratepayers and taxpayers. And they're huge. So like bills would go way, way up. Yeah. And that would be politically disastrous. So I guess I'm, I'm asking you an unanswerable question, which is just, it doesn't seem like private capital covering this massive backlog of costs that don't produce any returns is a good model, but it also doesn't seem like taxpayers or ratepayers understand it well enough to like take it over and then take on much, much higher costs up front. So this is like the question I come to at the end of the book, just like, where does the money come from? The money you have to spend to make this system safe is what it is. Somebody's got to pay it. What is the right system for paying it? Nobody wants to pay it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the the only argument for an ownership change is, is to remove the profit motive, right? But like it doesn't, it really doesn't solve a number of other problems. It's either, yeah, it, it basically the taxpayer becomes... Um, responsible for upkeep of the system as well as the liabilities that result from inevitable system failure. Yeah. A lot of people focus on the ownership question. Mm-hmm. So there's there's certainly that sort of philosophical debate to be had about what is the right model. But then there's also the practical reality of the fact that pg e is not for sale, right? pg e is not selling its assets. And, you know, it'd have to be a really contentious, some like forced takeover, <laughs> you know, that would be really unpopular and uh, definitely a protracted fight. So we're stuck with this. I don't mean that disparagingly, but like, this is the model, the cake is baked, so to speak, right? This is, this is what we have. And I think the question, the, probably the better question becomes like, okay, so then how do we, how do we make it workable? How do we make it so that there's better oversight of spending both within the company and within the regulator? You know, how do you improve compliance? How do you drive down, you know, inspection costs, these, these kinds of things. And I think that everyone, I will say that I think everyone who's kind of relevant in answering this question is trying to do so and is, is trying to do more. But, you know, as, as it's very clear in our discussion, I mean, these are truly, I mean, they're, they're problems and challenges of an enormous scale. Yeah. And not particularly unique to California. And I just come back, uh, you know, over and over again to the notion that as long as this basic misaligned incentive exists in investor-owned utilities, which is the only way to make money is to build new stuff and maintaining your current stuff is deadweight loss. Like you can push back against that incentive via really good regulators that are paying close attention, our new specific rules, but ultimately it just feels like you're kind of pushing against the tide there until that basic core incentive is changed somehow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a very excellent point. It's, this is not just a PG&E problem. I mean, I think a lot of utilities across the country, you have historically, you know, mismanaged spending or mismanaged risk in some way. And because of this tension between private interests and, and the public good that's inherent within the system. And I mean, th- and maybe they did so with little to no consequence, but that's, start- I think I, I, my view is that that's really starting to change. We're seeing more extreme weather events. Uh, that's putting more stress on a, a system that's our aging anyway. Yeah, I mean, the bill was going to come due at some point. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's like you can't get away with it for a long time. From some perspective, it's friggin' amazing that we built infrastructure in 1920 or whatever, or 19, you know, 15, that is still operating <laughs> relatively reliably. I mean, uh, all, all things considered, it's crazy. But it like, it is, yeah. Of course, that bill is going to come due, and I don't even think it's just in utilities either. Like you look at, you know, critics of suburban sprawl say basically the same thing. Like you build new suburban sprawl, you get a sort of immediate infusion of new money, an immediate infusion of new investment, which allows you to go build the new thing. But like sooner or later, the bill comes due for maintaining all that stuff you built. And it's just not producing enough tax revenue to pay the maintenance costs. And like, who's going to pay the maintenance costs? It, all the shenanigans with corporate, you know, shuffling money about and shuffling liability about in the end, you come to the question of like, you just need a certain amount of money 
to maintain the stuff you built. And somebody's got to cough up that money. And it seems like America built a bunch of infrastructure and has been coasting on it. And now in all these different areas, the bill is coming due. And like, A, we've got corporations that are just not structured to pay it. And then B, we've got a public that has no idea that that this dynamic is going on and would not react favorably if suddenly presented with the bill for all this maintenance. So we're just putting it off, you know, in electricity and everywhere else. Yeah. And if there's one takeaway, I hope it's that is that, you know, PG&E is a is a good lens through which to view a lot of these challenges nationally that I think we're going to be talking a lot more about in the years to come. You know, the, the book stops more or less in the middle of these cycles, you know, fire, lawsuit, verdict, scramble to improve things, another fire, <laughs> and right. more lawsuits. Like, it, you more or less just stop in the middle of that cycle. A, do you have any predictions about how this will settle out or even if it will settle at all? I don't know what even settling would look like. But B, are you going to write a sequel? <laughs> I won't rule it out, but I'll say not immediately. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need a little break from book writing. A little break, and uh, maybe maybe a little more content. We'll see what uh, got to see what's next for for the company. Oh, you know they'll comically screw up sooner or later. Start your watch. I'm sure that something really unfortunate will happen, but I, I, I will say this: I am cautiously optimistic that things will be somewhat better going forward. It remains to be seen how quickly that becomes the case and whether that is sustainable. So keeping a certainly keeping a close eye. Right. The race between modest improvement and then things getting worse via climate change. It's like where do those yeah. how do those how do those two things balance out? Yeah. I mean lots this this book is a story of, you know, systemic failure and the convergence of kind of almost an unfathomable number of risks. So <laughs> that's a story, the story of our time. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. And I really enjoyed the book. It was really, uh, um, even for someone who, you know, lived through all that stuff and wrote something about it. It's a real page turner for me. There are tons of details I didn't know anything about that are quite fascinating. I'm so glad to hear that. I really am. Thank you for having me. This is a really fun discussion. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.